0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're tuned in to The Property Show, our weekly take on all things property related. And I'm Philip C. It's the last Friday of the month, of the year, and as usual, our guest, Dato Ringo Lau, Managing Partner from Ringo Lau & Associates for the Property Legal Clinic. Merry belated Christmas, Dato Ringo. I hope your Christmas was as eventful as mine.
1: Merry Christmas to you too. Well, it was fun, enjoyable, catching up with some close friends and families.
0: Well, I'm sure it was enjoyable for most of us, but we, I think, are in the more blessed and fortunate bunch. Uh, Many, I think, were still struggling from the floods. And it would be amiss if we didn't touch on the legal aspects of the recent flash floods that took place uh, across the country and particularly, I think, affected uh, Slango quite a bit. And, you know, Dr Ringo, I just want to have a conversation with you about, you know, the legal responsibilities of flooding. You know, we as a country, we are not unique or to flood. So where, where does the legal framework with respect to flooding come in?
1: I I think we have to look at uh, various uh, angles. The first to start off for me would be the local government. Now, local government, they are in charge of waterways or rivers and drainage. There they are statutory provisions where they are entrusted with the responsibility. Now, the flood, it could arguably be said that it's an act of God. But then again in Malaysia, seeing that we had our first major flood of almost the whole country with the I think Plank Valley submerged in 1971. So this is something that is not not cannot be said to be not foreseeable. Hmm. And and every year at this time of at this time of the year, we have monsoons as well. And that has caused extensive flooding. I mean, one of the major extensive flooding was in the East Coast in 2014. So I would say that the governmental authorities can reasonably foresee that flooding can exceed what had taken place in normal years. So I believe, aside from the statutory duties of local government, under the common law principle, or what we call the neighbour principle, they have a duty to ensure that Steps are taken to prevent the recurrence of floods. So I, I believe what, uh, what uh, I think the MCA in Negri and Milan has uh, initiated legal proceedings. Or at least they said they wanted to initiate legal pursuing. It's
0: a first step to take. Let's build on that because this was a story that took place uh, early February and I think this is something worth bringing up again, uh, where in this case here, a group of residents and business operators, right, whose properties were damaged by flash floods in Suramban last November, actually planned to sue the Negeri Sembilan government for damages. And that was actually led by the RASA MCA Secretary Unken Nam. So they have grounds to make claims against the state government then?
1: I, I think I think they have a reasonable course of action because if, if reading the article, that, you know they, they have raised various issues, like for instance, failure to, to manage or open the floodgates around the water treatment plant and also failure to upgrade the floodgate system and to release the excess water and to provide drainage system. Of course, when you sue a local government, the burden is on you to establish the wrongdoings on your part. I think they've identified possible wrongdoings which can be sustained if there is evidence to support it.
0: Mm. And I want to just bring and, converse and a deep dive on this conversation because we still haven't done a post-mortem on actually what happened to the floods, whether preventative measures could have been taken place. Although you kind of say, look, this is not really... Purely, purely an act of God. We can foresee this, right? But is there a case also about warning and alert systems where we knew there was an alert coming from the Met, uh, Met, Meteorology Department but no action was taken there to warn citizens and residents? Are there, is that the grounds for claims?
1: On, on my personal opinion, I think I think there's a valid ground here. There's a valid ground to pin a portion of the blame on the Met Department because I, I'm going on a premise that They owe a duty of care to each and every resident. If they foresee that there is a massive depression coming that will cause massive rainfall, then by all means or by whatever means, they should at least warn the residents. This is a first preemptive action. Mm. I think uh, we are prejudging the issue. I think they failed on that score because it wasn't properly, properly highlighted to everyone or warned to everyone that... Yeah, might be heavy rains. This, this is something
0: really disappointing as well. It's, it's a very interesting point because, you know, you think about where you can lay the claim to. It, it actually sits across so many so many levels, isn't it? You have federal-level institutions like the MED, uh, NADMA, even Disaster Recovery, right, who are not preparing for it. You could also say it's even the state authorities for not, Putting in place or unclogging the right drainage systems uh, in the local vicinity that accelerates the flooding, you know. So, you know, where, what is the best way for claims for such as these to take place?
1: It, it, my, my simple view is that if there is a course of action that uh, residents can group together, it will be uh, mainly for negligence. It's it's a part of negligence hmm. uh, arising from the neighbor principle where you owe a duty of care. to to ensure that you do not cause harm to your neighbour, the harm which is reasonably foreseeable. To me, there are also statutory duties, of course, statutory duties under various statutory provisions. But I think generally the thought of negligence would suffice for a, a cause of action for the loss and damage suffered as a result of the recent flooding.
0: Mm-hmm. And in terms of compensation, the value uh, you do, I mean, you hear government, I think, putting in place, you know, some form of compensation. Of course, a lot of criticism that that's not really enough. Would the value of the compensation be essentially equivalent to basically just the total damages to property and life loss?
1: If if the course of action is sustained in court, then rightfully the, the damages would be what the residents have actually suffered. It, it cannot be the pittance 1,000 per victim or per family that the government has, has offered. It's it's much too low. I mean, you just take a small family. If their their fridge, their electrical appliances at home are damaged, that alone would probably exceed the 1,000. Mm. What more, their shops as well. You know, you, you, I've seen some social media pictures of, of goods being damaged by flood. You know, their stocks, their food supplies. I, I think I, I really would encourage a course of action to be taken up at least to test the the, the liability of your local government as well as the federal government in terms of weather warning forecast to determine what sort of protection we residents can
0: get. And and, and if you shift the conversation a bit from you are saying, look, there is a bit of act of care and responsibility by the government to do this. Can we talk about the contracts of insurance? Um, you know, I think many people are also, you know, questioning and wondering, why is it that I don't have flood coverage uh, in my insurance? Of of course, it's very optional. Is there any way people can take action or oh, it's very hard because it's just all enshrined in the contract, isn't it? It, it, it,
1: is. it, is, it is. It is totally enshrined in the contract, like you said, Phil. You, you can't sue if you don't have coverage for it. Mm. it unfortunate. It's unfortunate. It's even- unfortunate.
0: And even if, let's say, there's a delay in response of how you kind of settle claims and all that, that could be still a debate, but rarely rarely has that surfaced as as an issue, isn't it? No,
1: I I think the the, the issue of liability will be determined by what is contractually provided for in terms of cover.
0: We'll have more of your questions and answers from Datu Ringo Lau, Managing Partner from Ringo Lau & Associates, after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C, and I have Datuk Ringo Lau, Managing Partner from Ringo Lau & Associates, here with me for the monthly property legal clinic that takes place on the last Friday of the month. Alright, now let's shift our conversation from the floods to a whole load of questions that I've actually received from our listeners uh, and I just go straight to one anonymous and his question is this I have a tenant who has not paid rent for the past two months and it looks like it's not coming anytime for there's no response from him so I sent him an, inve- an eviction notice that reads as follows I'm hereby giving you the following notices in the absence of your failing to pay rent for the months of X and X and X and his question to you is, is this good enough for me to evict him with a- the help of a police report?
1: Well, you can make a police report, but you can't possibly evict tenant under our present law. You can't do that. You need a court order.
0: I see. So so basically that court order can be done and with that can he make can he take measures to recover any of his money with that court order, court order as well?
1: Yes he can. He can. He can recover monies or arrears of rental as well as for possession of
0: property. And give us a sense of how easy it is to basically secure the court order. What is the process for doing that?
1: Now it it uh, there there are at the present moment uh, as i understand it two processes one is by way of uh, what you call to apply for an order called a writ of distress basically the rentals must be in arrears of more than 2 months but not exceeding 12 months that process will be so much faster to get a court order to option of whatever property that is uh, attachable under the distress act and then an auction will be held to dispose of the property And then whatever sales proceeds will be used to set off. But that one may not get the eviction order until and unless the tenant surrenders. That's one one step. Another step is to sue for arrears of rental in normal civil proceedings and then to ask for a writ of possession as well. Now, that will take slightly longer. That will perhaps take six months to a year. But the writ of distress will be so much faster, but Mm. with no guarantee of, possession. No guarantee possession.
0: I see. And and I guess the full-on question is, you know, mm-hmm. when can they place a let to board uh, on the premises? When can they do that now?
1: I, I, I suppose once the tenant's in, in default, it, it doesn't matter. You can place it on the premises. The premises belong to you as long as you are not disturbing the quiet enjoyment of the property by the tenant. There cannot be said to be a breach of the tenancy contract.
0: Okay, we'll move to the next question and we're going to take this quiet enjoyment term really on a, to a literal sense because my next question is uh, from another uh, one of our listeners. I'm a tenant in a block uh, apartments owned by a single landlord. In the past two weeks, there have been daily drillings from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. as the apartment upstairs is being renovated. I think all of us are experiencing that as we all try to do our home renovations. The noise is extremely deafening, especially for us who work from home now, which is so True. Does it constitute a breach in the tenancy agreement with regards to quiet enjoyment of property as tenants? Are they are they taking quiet enjoyment a bit too literally here?
1: Actually, actually, one should not take it too literally. But because of the fact that the whole block is owned by a single landlord, in this situation, your, your, the person who posed the question can certainly take it literally. There is an obligation on the part of the landlord to ensure that either he or his servants, agents, or anyone under his control does not interfere with the enjoyment of the property. Now, all these noises that are created is certainly a disturbance or an interference with the enjoyment. And as such, yes, it would be a breach of the tenancy agreement, provided, of course, there is an express provision in the tenancy agreement. So what, what, then again, then okay. again, it can also be argued that such a provision can also be implied into a tenancy agreement in the absence of an express provision of quiet enjoyment clause.
0: Oh, interesting. So, what what course of action can you take then? You can
1: actually sue the landlord for loss and, and damage if you want. Or I would suggest. The practical approach is to inform the landlord right from the very start that it is not tolerable and then inform the landlord that I'm suffering inconvenience, asking landlord to offer compensation. Then if not, you might want to bring it to a court proceedings to determine the extent of the inconvenience and the suffering that you've encountered, which may be quantifiable in terms of damages by way of maybe half month's rental or one month's rental. It's, it's really quite arbitrary in that
0: sense. And so then, I guess one of the challenges with these kind of situations where the whole apartment is owned by a single landlord, you don't have the classic uh, committees and all that, right, to raise issues, isn't it? That's that's the central problem, isn't it?
1: Yes, indeed. And, and also, if it is by a third party, if it's by a third party, then the land it's very difficult to pin the blame on the landlord for having breached the Quiet Enjoyment Clause because the, third, the landlord might not have any control or the third party who is creating the, the the noise.
0: Now let's move to the next question. At a recent MC AGM of my condo, uh, he had suggested for shoplot and residential units to be charged at an equal rate per share unit in view of a court verdict in 2019. However, the shoplot owners who have a higher number of share units had voted the proposal down. Um, is this legal? The,
1: the straight answer: it's not. Cannot be done because uh, because the court of appeal in uh, this Manara rajavali case had set out quite clearly that there can only be a uniform rate even in a mixed development whether it's commercial property and or residential property combined there can only be a uniform rate. So what 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 has happened here is that although they 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 shot down the the proposal by way of having higher share units, I think a complaint ought to be lodged to the Commissioner of Building for remedial action to be taken.
0: I'm quite curious, you know, these mixed developments that take place, and I'm sure they're proliferating all around Clang Valley. Do we have this issue, until before that court ruling, about mixed rates between residential and shop lots and commercial? No,
1: that, that Raja Wali case has made it clear. Even, even in that case itself, there were... It was shop lots and residential units. So then Mm -hmm. the court held that there must be a uniform rate for both types of properties.
0: And zero exceptions, right, allowed?
1: No, no exceptions considered.
0: I see. Okay. Okay, very interesting. So he can just basically, it, it doesn't matter, right, about whether or not the shop wall owner's disagreed or not with it. It's just part of the legal framework already embedded in.
1: Yeah, he, he, he can just ignore it He say it's totally illegal and and, and, and direct the, the MC or whoever's in charge there to say that if, if you don't convene another EGM to rectify this, this illegality, I'm not bound to pay you because I don't agree to the rate. So, so that could be uh, an issue that can be raised.
0: Okay. Now, the next question really refers to, I think, service level recovery. And uh, this listener also, with a number of house owners, stays in a community of double-story houses. Uh, and they've had water-leaking problems. They've complained to the developer. And they did send someone to fix the problem, but it came back again after one or two months. And some of owners have experienced this five, six rounds, but the root cause was really never fixed, you know. So I think the developer did try to resolve this, but you know, after multiple efforts, really didn't materialize. You know, and really, I think out of frustration, is there anything they can do out of out of this? Now,
1: first of all, one has to determine whether the, the first complaint, the initial complaint, was within the defects liability period, which is twenty-four months after delivery of vacant possession. Now, if the if the problem has arisen within the first twenty-four months after having taken possession, then arguably uh, one could say that this problem was never rectified. Mm-hmm. So it would still be the developer's liability to ensure that this is properly uh, rectified. However, if the the rectification has been done and then there are further or subsequent uh, what you call uh, leakages, which is not related to the first complaint within the defects liability period, then the, the residents might have to bear with it themselves.
0: Yeah, so I'm quite intrigued with this uh, defect-raising uh, situation, right? So let's say you raise it during that period, right, which is possible. Yes. Uh, it doesn't appear again, but it, resurf- it resurfaces about one or two years later after the defect liability period. Is that still grounds for claims?
1: Uh, arguably, it may be if you can show that it's actually arising from the same defect that you complained of in the first place. Uh, in which case, then then you would ask the developer to repair it. If they don't, you repair it and then claim the cost from the developer. And and one other point here, uh, uh, Philip. While while the the residents when they complain about this kind of uh, water leakage problem within the defects liability period. It is also prudent for them to inform the stakeholders. There, there is a, a lawyer who is appointed as a stakeholder for, I think, about balance 5% of the purchase price. They will hold uh, on behalf of the developer to, to satisfy whatever uh, cost of remedial, uh, of uh, cost of remedying all defects or whatever, uh, to be released only after the end of the 24-month period. So one could also notify those solicitors there, whoever is engaged as the stakeholder to say that I've got defects here. uh, It's going to cost money. Now, please do not release those money to the developer until my complaints or my defects are active. I would advise them to do that as well so that the, the lawyers won't release the money uh, when the time is up you know, hmm. until this issue is resolved.
0: But what about the scenario where it's outside the, the liability period? You are, it's You're in an old property and, you know, it's a common recurring problem. Is there any grounds for that? If, let's say, it doesn't touch or doesn't even have any no, linkages then, 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 then the got nothing to the liability? to do
1: developer period. if it's like a secondary purchase or whatever. I see. Then you determine where's the cost. Could it be from your neighbor's crack or whatever, you know, uh, or the neighbor's renovation works? Then of course you want to give notice to your
0: neighbor. Okay. So you have no cause for that. It's only workable if it's within or within or you can link it to the defects liability period to a certain Indeed, extent. That's correct. Okay. If we move to the next question, if an individual is being named as one of the inheritors, and in this scenario, one out of ten, to some real estates under LED Up administration, but do not uh, make the land grant available, can the individual claim the rights part of the real estate? If yes, how can this but be done?
1: I think this is this is a not so simple question to be answered. Actually, when you talk about, uh, then you talk about the letters of administration, basically you're dealing with an estate where there's no will and then the law of distribution will come into play and whether there's land grant or not, it doesn't really matter. Of course, if you, if you are one of those who is entitled to a share in the estate, yes, you can claim for it, but you've got to identify who is the administrator who's been granted the authority to, to manage the estate and then liaise with the administrator. And if... Uh, things don't come to what you want then i think the best thing is to get a lawyer to deal with it
0: and i guess what complicates this specific question was the land of administration was over 30 years old and the individual has lost touch with all the other inheritors is there any recalls or any options they can take besides if they cannot contact the administrator
1: i, I think it's very difficult because there's no grant title you say that so you can't do a search with the land office to determine so it's a question of getting in touch with whoever you can that is close to those potential uh, uh, people who are entitled to estate. Otherwise, I'm afraid there's nothing much that can be done under the circumstances.
0: And we go to the last legal question. I think this is a very interesting one. And I I, I have friends who actually have experienced the same problem before. Uh, And uh, the listener's question is this, right? His office is on the ground floor of a seven floor building. Most of the first floor on the top is uh, bird's nest. At the roof are telecoms antennas. Most out- owners are outstations or elderly. No one wants to be elected as a committee member. The current chairman and treasurer are best of friends or buddies. They put on all sorts of religious altars and did some painting and repair works. And now they want to add additional uh, facilities without consent. And all this is without committee members' agreements as MCO, So there was no meeting as well. So the problem here is that a lot of the other lot owners are not willing to be committee members. What can he do in this case?
1: I suppose he can try to enjoy the bird's nest. (laughs) Simple answer. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, actually, actually this resident should uh, write to the Commissioner of Buildings to request for a managing agent to be appointed under the circumstances. And then the managing agent can actually uh, deal with the property together with whatever statutory powers that are set up in the Strata Management Act. Then that will solve a lot of the problems that uh, this uh, particular questionnaire has raised
0: in addition to enjoying the bird's nest. That's yes. all the time we have for today for today's monthly Property Legal Clinic. Join us again next month as we help you shed light on your legal conundrums. Dr Ringola, always a pleasure with your wisdom and insight. Going forward, send your questions to property at bfm.my or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. We have the 10am News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9.